appears here at Vincent, but he goes with our blessing and we pray that the Lord will use him uh, in the new assembly that he's at. Now, as we've said, we're continuing our studies in Romans, uh, looking at Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 1 to 17 today. Now, as Paul went through the Roman world preaching the gospel and sharing this message about Jesus Christ, he often faced a real challenge from his fellow Jews. So his fellow Jews would say to him, look, Paul, God met with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai long ago, and he gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, the instructions about how they ought to live. And the reason for this was because God wanted Israel to be a nation that would be set apart, that would be a shining light to the world. And if everybody wanted to see how to live the the good life, the the life that pleased God and lived with his blessing, well, they would look at Israel and, and see what a great nation they were, so close to God, so pleasing to God, because they had been given the law. And they would say to Paul, listen now, Paul, what you're doing is you're telling people that they are no longer under the law as an authority over them. Uh, You're no longer under the law as a condemning force in your life. Uh, And with all of that, um, people would be very concerned at Paul precisely because he seemed to be undermining the law so much. And they would be saying, well, actually, this isn't at all what God would like. This is very, very problematic. Now, when Paul responds to an accusation like that, we've seen over the past few weeks that what he says is that actually the law is good. There's no problem with the law. Paul doesn't have an issue there. The law is full of God's wonderful wisdom. The problem is with us. That's where the problem lies. The law tells us what to do and what not to do. And when it does that, then it just whets our appetite to do exactly what the law tells us not to do. It just stirs up sin within us. And so the problem is not with the law itself, but the problem is that the law by itself can never actually make us please God. Because we don't have the power to do it. It just stimulates sin and exacerbates the problem. Now, if you've ever been to the Science Museum in Newcastle, and I suppose many of you might not have been unless you've had children to take there, but in the Science Museum in Newcastle, there's an exhibit, a section of the exhibition on human psychology. And one of the exhibits is this big red button, and beside it it says, do not push this button. And on the floor is a big LCD display uh, with this image of, Doors, metal doors. It looks kind of like a metal box almost. And so all the children, they're going through the exhibition and they see this big red button that says, do not push this button. And sure, they, they want to push the button. And so they stand up on the metal box and they push the button. And then with a great big creaking and crashing sound, the, the digital display beneath them opens up and there's these the gaping doors into this bottomless pit and they all scream and jump off the metal box. Um, And it's all very fun and amusing, but it does illustrate a very important principle about the way that human beings actually think. That when we're told not to do something, well, it starts to get us thinking, well, why are we being told not to do this? What good things are we missing out on by not pushing this button or not doing this particular thing? And this is exactly our problem with God's law that he gave to the people of Israel. It's full of wonderful wisdom and guidance, but then it gets us thinking, well, what's God trying to to keep from us what good things is he trying to stop us getting and so we end up actually falling into greater sin because of the law 
And as Paul then explains in Romans chapter 7, in 7 through 25, that Jim dealt with last week, it isn't just a problem that unbelievers experience. It's something that believers actually experience as well, because we want to obey God's law. We want to please God. But we often find that there's this, this indwelling sin within us that gets the better of us sometimes. And even though sometimes we want to do the right thing, we so often fail to do it. And so when Paul gets to the end of Romans chapter 7, he cries out in misery, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So is there any hope for Paul? Well, yes, there is hope for Paul. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is hope for Paul. God will deliver him through Jesus Christ. This hope is yet future, a coming day when Paul will receive the resurrected body and an entirely transformed nature that will be focused only in God and the presence of sin will be no more. Yet that day hasn't yet arrived. It's coming. God will deliver him through Jesus Christ. But his present experience is described in this, where he says, so then with my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. And so he's got this struggle that goes on within him where his mind delights in God's law. He's already experienced this transformation where he loves God and his instruction, but he's got this lingering corruption within him, the flesh that causes him to fall into sin again and again. And so this struggle continues with us throughout our lives in one way or another. But if that's all that Paul could say about our Christian experience, then that would be quite depressing. And really, um, we need to realise that Paul has more to say on the Christian life and he has more to say in Romans chapter 8. For Paul, there is a way, not just of living with struggles, but of substantial growth in the Christian life and substantial victory over sin. Because if Paul was responding to his Jewish peers who were saying that, you know, Paul, you've got a real problem. You're teaching people that they don't have to obey the law. And all that Paul could say is, well, it's a struggle, isn't it? then that wouldn't be a very optimistic message that he would have to convey to them. It is a struggle, but Paul has to say more. He has to say that there is substantial victory available. There's substantial change which is available to the Christian. And that's what he's going to explain in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. And so the big question that we are confronted with as we look at this passage this morning is, how does God enable us to obey him if the law by itself isn't going to help us how can we live lives that are pleasing to God so we're going to read the passage and then we're going to think about what Paul has to say to us through the spirit of God but we're going to begin in verse 24 just for the sake of making that connection verse 24 of chapter 7 and so this closes off chapter 7 and Paul writes what a wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds in the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind in the flesh is death, but to set the mind in the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead or subject to death because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. And this is the word of the Lord. Now, there are three things here that I want to outline from Paul's thinking that, that explains for us how we can live lives that are pleasing to God. And in, in the first four verses, verses one to four, God enables us to obey because he frees us from condemnation. No condemnation is the verdict over us, and we're going to see how that enables us to obey God. Then in verses five through to 11, we see that God enables us to obey him because he brings us into a new realm. So he takes us out of the realm of the flesh into the realm of the spirit. We've got a new mindset. I'm going to see how that enables us to obey God. And then thirdly, in verses 12 to 17, we see that he enables us to obey him because he brings us into a new relationship. No longer slaves to sin, but children of God. And we'll see how that then affects our ability to actually obey God. So let's have a think about each of those headings and think about what Paul has to say under each of those. Now, the first thing is that God enables us to obey because he frees us from condemnation. In the very first verse, it opens with those startling words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, the word therefore, it starts getting us thinking about, well, what's the connection between what Paul is saying here and what he said at the end of chapter 7. Because at the end of chapter 7, verse 25, Paul has said that God will deliver him through Jesus Christ. And yet, even though that transformation is something which is yet to happen in the future, God will deliver him. For Paul, this is something which has already begun in the present. It has already begun in God's work in Christ. And that's why he can say about what is true now. And so he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation 
to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the very first thing that God does for us is that to deliver us from this snare of sin is to cancel our condemnation. And over our lives, no matter how bad we might have been, no matter how wicked we might have been, God writes these words, no condemnation. That's his verdict over our lives. And this is true for us if we belong to Jesus Christ, if we are, as Paul says here, in Christ Jesus. Then God declares to us that we are not condemned. So there's never going to come a day in our lives where we stand before God and God will look at you as a Christian and say, you're guilty and you're condemned to suffer for your sins. That will not happen because we are not condemned. Now that's really counterintuitive actually because remember we're thinking here about how we can actually obey God. How we can be enabled to live lives that are pleasing to God. It's counterintuitive then that the very first thing that God would say to us is that we're not condemned. You think that actually if we want people to live upright lives then they need a healthy sense of guilt. They need a bit of shame to motivate them, don't they? But actually guilt is a really poor motivator. It's really bad at getting us to do the right thing. Now, recently, we've been trying to potty train Isaac. Um, and, of course, Isaac, he regularly makes mistakes and he ends up wetting himself. And, and this annoys me because, inevitably, it leaves a bit of a mess. And so I scold him and tell him that he should know better and that he should make sure that he goes to the toilet rather than wetting himself all over the place. But... Unfortunately, my motivation to induce guilt in Isaac isn't working too well because lately he's taken to avoiding me and any time he happens to wet himself, he just ignores me completely and goes to Lauren and, and explains to her that he's wet himself. So he refuses to talk to me about it anymore. And so Lauren has explained to me that actually my method of trying to induce change in Isaac is actually a bit counterproductive. What I should be doing is trying to offer him some reassurance when he does well. And, and when he doesn't manage to succeed, then I should reassure him that he can do better next time, that it's all okay. Um, thankfully, God isn't like me. Because when we fail, uh, when we don't do what is right, God realises that for us to change, what we need is not for the guilt to be piled on. Not for us to be told that we are condemned because of what we have done. But what we actually need is this verdict of no condemnation over us. That's the only thing that's going to change us. Because when we get that sense of guilt that, that God is angry with us because of what we have done, then that just makes us avoid God. Just like Isaac avoids me because he doesn't want to feel guilty, that we just avoid God because we don't want to feel guilty and ashamed. And so guilt works out as a very poor motivator. So God tells us that we're not condemned. And verse 2 of chapter 8 then explains that this verdict of no condemnation is brought about through the work of the Spirit who sets us free from the condemning effects of sin and death. Paul refers to sin and death here as laws, as principles that rule over us. They're dominating forces in our lives and he says that they are gone now. The Spirit of God has come into our lives and it brings life rather than sin and death. And verse 3 then more specifically explains how God has taken away our condemnation to enable us to obey him. He says that the law was weakened through the flesh. 
That is, the law was good, like we've said. But because of our sinful, corrupt natures, then whenever the law told us not to do something, then we wanted to do it because it just incited sin within us. The law was weakened through the flesh. It couldn't produce change in us. But then Paul says that God has done what the law could not do. And God did it by cancelling our condemnation. But how does God do this? It says that by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, that is, as a sin offering, as a sacrifice for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now notice here that it doesn't say that he sent his son in sinful flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ, he never sinned. He was perfect and spotless. That's the only way that he could actually take our sins upon himself. Rather, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, like us in every way, but apart from sin. So that in a body just like ours, the Son of God would take our condemnation as one of us, as a representative for us, in his own flesh on the cross, and so when it says that God condemned sin in the flesh, it means that God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ, that as he hung there upon the cross, the Lord Jesus, in that human body, bore our condemnation. And the condemnation that would have sunk us and ruined us for all eternity was borne by the Lord Jesus Christ. The wonderful outcome of that then, as Paul says, is that we are free from condemnation. God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ so that the verdict of no condemnation would be set above us and we don't need to live in fear anymore that God is against us. And so, as verse 4 says, this results in lives that are pleasing to God. God did this work in Christ. He set us free from condemnation so that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Isn't that remarkable? That, that we have been removed from having the law as a force over us, but instead of that leading to more sin, actually it leads to transformed lives. The ones that are removed from under the guilt and condemnation and the force of the law are actually the ones that turn out to obey the righteous requirement of the law. What does this righteous requirement of the law then mean and what sense is it fulfilled in us? Well, I think that what it means is that what the essence of the law required is now fulfilled in us. In the Gospels, the Lord Jesus Christ, he talked about this. One time the Lord Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment of the law was. And the Lord Jesus, he says in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, this sums up the very essence of what God was requiring from his people from the very beginning. He wanted a fervent love for God and a fervent love for our neighbour, one another around us. And yet, the people of Israel, given this instruction from God, failed time and time and time again. The only way to a transformed life is through what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, removing our condemnation and so what the law could not do, in that it was weakened through the flesh, God has done by condemning 
sin in the person of Jesus Christ so that we would be set free, so that we would be the people that live for God out of this freedom that the Spirit has brought. And so that's the first key to understanding how God produces obedience in us. He says to us, you're not condemned, no condemnation for you. And that then frees us to obey God because we no longer serve out of sense of guilt and condemnation, but a sense of freedom and love. Now, the second thing that God does to enable us to obey him is he brings us into a new realm. At the end of verse four, he describes us as those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This isn't a kind of special category of Christian. Some Christians, you know, who are a notch above others because they walk according to the spirit. No, this is a description of all Christians. Either we are those who walk according to the flesh or we're those who walk according to the spirit. This is every Christian. And for Paul then, once we were in the flesh, that's what we used to be, now we are in the spirit. Now it's helpful at this point to try and explain what Paul means by these terms because it's a little bit confusing, this terminology that he actually uses. Now it should be clear from the outset what Paul doesn't mean. When he says that we are no longer in the flesh but in the spirit, he doesn't mean that we no longer have physical bodies because we've become disembodied spirits. Last I checked, all of us here had physical bodies. So he doesn't mean that. Nor does he mean that the human body in and of itself is bad and therefore the whole goal of the Christian life is to rid ourselves of these bodies so that we can become pure disembodied spirits. That's what some ancient Greeks believed, but it's not what Christians believe. Because we believe that God gave us bodies and God will actually raise our bodies in the future. Instead, when Paul talks about the flesh, he's thinking about human beings apart from Christ. Human beings in their fallen and unredeemed state. Human beings in Adam apart from Christ. What it means then to be in the spirit is to be joined to Jesus Christ through the work of the Spirit and to have this transforming work begun in your life. And so because of this difference then um, between being in the flesh and in the Spirit, God's ultimate purpose is to do away with the flesh. All that is unredeemed and fallen in us, all that is lingering corruption is going to be done away with through God's decisive work in the end. And so if we approach Paul with this insight, then it starts to make sense. So he says in verse 9, for example, that you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. In other words, we are no longer unredeemed and fallen people. We are no longer apart from Christ. We've been renewed by the Holy Spirit. But even though we are fundamentally not in the flesh, but in the spirit... That doesn't mean that the flesh doesn't cause problems for us, because it does. That's what Paul has been saying in Romans chapter 7 and verse 25, where he talks about the flesh that is still attached to us, the flesh that causes us problems still. In other words, there are parts of us that have not yet been fully redeemed by God. There are parts of us, this side of the resurrection, that are still corrupt and sinful, and they're going to cause problems for us. And so when we feel an urge towards sin, that urge is not coming from who we fundamentally are in the sense of what God's making us to be. That urge is coming from the old us. That urge is coming from the flesh. 
the indwelling sin that's still there that causes us problems. But in chapter 8, what Paul wants to stress for us is not the struggle. What Paul is stressing for us here is that we are fundamentally changed. We are not in the flesh. We are not outside of Christ. We are new people. We are in the spirit because a change of realm has occurred. There's been a decisive change. Now, I suppose a parallel to this might be found in how the UK left the EU. Because at one time, we were all in the European Union. We were bound to its laws, to its agreements, to its economic arrangements, and so on and so forth. Our identity was wrapped up in who we were as members of the EU. But there came a day when that all changed. At that decisive moment, we were no longer in the EU. In the EU. We no longer were bound by its laws and its agreements and its treaties and its economic arrangements. Our identity had been changed. And even though it was going to take a long time, and it still is an ongoing process, how exactly we figure out who we now are apart from the EU, the decisive change has occurred, even though it's still an ongoing process. Similarly for Christians, the Spirit of God has transferred us out of the flesh, out of that realm of the flesh, into the realm with the Spirit of God, as it were, in our lives, and, and even though it's an ongoing process which hasn't been finalised and completely fulfilled yet, it is true. It has decisively taken place. We are decisively different because of what the Spirit has done. Before we think about how to live that out, it's, it's important to think about how this decisive work of the Spirit is important in enabling our obedience. And the key here is found in verse 5 where Paul says that those who live according to the flesh, according to that old fallen way of life, they set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now you need to be clear here. This is not what Paul is saying we must do. This isn't a command. This is a description of what Christians are actually like. What he's saying here is that when we become those who belong to Jesus Christ, our mindset decisively changes because there's been a change of realm, because the Spirit of God is now at work in our lives. Then our whole way of thinking has just changed. Paul says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That is, they've got no interest in pleasing God. They are They've got their minds set on the things of the flesh. They're interested in how to please themselves. They're interested in the concerns of this life. They're not concerned about God's. That is the way the mindset of the flesh works. But those who are, according to the Spirit, have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. That is, we are suddenly interested in pleasing God. We're suddenly interested in what God wants from us. We're suddenly interested in worshipping with other Christians. We're suddenly interested in knowing God and serving other people. And so this fundamental change in mindset is actually the key to enabling us to obey God. And Paul wants us to know then that we are in the Spirit. We are not any longer in the flesh. And so he emphasises this in verse 9 and he says that, you know, 
if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, then they don't even belong to Christ. So this isn't some optional extra on top of the Christian life. This is decisively what it means to be a Christian. It means that you've got the spirit of God, that you've been transferred into the realm where he works, and your mindset has changed. It might not be complete yet, but it is a decisive change. And even though this transformation is complete, it has begun. And so he explains in verse 10 some aspects of it that are yet to be completed. He says that the body is dead or subject to death because of sin. In other words, we're going to die uh, if the Lord doesn't come because we live this side of the resurrection. And yet the spirit is the one who will bring life because we've been given the gift of righteousness. And just as the Spirit of God raised up Jesus Christ from the dead, so also if we've got the Spirit of God living within us, we know there's coming a day when our bodies will be raised from the dead like Jesus Christ and God's work of transformation will be complete. So it's decisively begun, it's an ongoing process, and it will come to fulfilment at the return of Jesus Christ. Now Paul's point in verses 5 to 11 then is that this change in realms has produced a change in our mindset and the way that we think and that this is really important in enabling us to obey God because if you're a Christian and you've experienced this, you know what it's like. You're not the person that you used to be. The way that you think has changed and you've got new desires and new goals. This isn't telling us what we've got to do at this stage. This is telling us what has happened to us. Because if we belong to Christ, then we've changed. We're in this new realm where transformation is occurring. And then finally, Paul emphasizes another point that's crucially, crucial in enabling our obedience to God. He says we've been brought into a new relationship with God. See, our old relationship was one in which sin was our master. Sin was the boss, and we talked about that previously in Romans 6. And we just did whatever sin wanted us to do. We, we constantly did everything that sin demanded from us. And that was our experience of the flesh. And so in verse 12, Paul says, you are no longer a debtor to the flesh to live according to it. In other words, you've been set free from that old bondage, that old person that you used to be. That's gone. That's finished now. You don't have to live like that. And it's crucial for us to keep that in our minds because, as Paul says in verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You'll show that you've never had this new life, this transforming work. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, then you will live now, the first part of this new relationship that we've got is realizing that we've been set free from the old relationship. We've set free from that old master sin that tried to trick us into doing what would ultimately lead to our destruction. And so what we've got to do then is put to death the things that that old us wants to do, the lingering corruption within us. We've got to put it to death. Or as old Christians used to say, we, we need to mortify indwelling sin within us and that's an important aspect of the christian life but the important the other part of this new relationship that we have is realizing who we now are paul says in verse 14 that all who are led by the spirit of god he's talking about all christians here not just special christians all christians are led by the spirit are sons are children of god 
We've been brought into this new relationship we were, where we are God's dearly loved children and God is our Father. And that's what we've been rejoicing in this morning as we've been praying and singing, rejoicing in this new relationship whereby God is our Father. According to verse 15 then, that means that we no longer have a spirit of slavery whereby we serve God out of fear. Uh, previously with our guilt and shame, any attempt to serve God would be done out of fear, but that's gone now. We're not motivated by guilt and fear. What motivates us is our love for our Father. And the Spirit of God within us, because that's the same Spirit that indwells the Lord Jesus Christ, then also gives us this, this sense of sonship. He is the one who makes us sons of God. Uh, he is the one then that gives us this, this sense within us that we are God's children and allows us to call God our Father. And so Paul says that the Spirit prompts us to cry out, Abba, Father. Now this word Abba is an unusual word. It's an Aramaic word, so it's a bit strange to find it in this Greek text which Paul is writing to the Romans in. Why does he throw in an Aramaic word? Aramaic was the language which Jesus and the disciples would have used in Palestine at that time. But it wasn't the, the common language across the Roman Empire. That would have been Greek. And that's why then the New Testament is written in Greek. But why this Aramaic word thrown in? Well, I suspect the reason, uh, as has already been alluded to by Sid in prayer this morning, the reason why the Spirit prompts us to cry out, Abba, Father, the reason why Paul uses this word is because this is how the Lord Jesus talk to the father in the garden of gethsemane in his moments of deepest grief and sorrow he prays abba father all things are possible for you remove this cup from me yet not what i will but you will and so for the lord jesus then calling god abba was a way of expressing his deep intimacy to his father a relationship which was unique to him and a relationship which he then shares with us so that we too can call God our Abba. Now much ink has been spilt over how to actually translate this. Uh, how we would put this into English, you know, the translations that we have just leave it as Abba, which isn't a translation, it's just a transliteration. Some suggest that it should be translated as something like Daddy. Others cringe at that and say, well actually that's a bit too familiar, we should Maybe go for something like, dear father. And I reckon part of the difficulty here is that people have got different ways of addressing their own earthly fathers. Uh, for some people, when they call their father daddy, there's no sense of disrespect in that. It's a term of warmth and closeness and of intimacy. And I think then that if the, the spirit prompts us to address God in such terms, then I think that's entirely correct. And yet for others, that might be a bit too disrespectful and something like dear father would be much more appropriate. And again, when the spirit prompts us to, to address God in that way, that is entirely appropriate. We're supposed to feel this sense of intimacy. In short then, I don't think there's an easy way of translating this into English just because different people will express this intimacy in different ways. The point that Paul is driving at is that this expression, Abba, is one of deep intimacy yet also a term of respect as well. And that's what God wants us to feel. And God wants us not only to feel that, but to be, to be sure of that relationship that we have. 
And that's why we read in verse 16 that he gives us the spirit to bear witness with our spirit that we are God's children. A witness is somebody that gives evidence. And so what we find here is that the Holy Spirit, along with our spirit, both give evidence that we are God's children. And we feel this deep within us, that yes, God is our Father, that we are loved by God, and that we are his children. And this then is evidence of our sonship. And we can be certain then of the fact that not only are we God's sons, that we are God's children, but that if we are God's children, then everything that belongs to God now belongs to us. We are heirs of God. God himself is our portion and our inheritance. We get God. Not only that, but being made sons along with Jesus Christ means that everything that Jesus Christ will come into possession of, everything that he currently has possession of, and everything that he will come into possession of, is ours. We are joint heirs, we are fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. And all that's laid up in the future, the new creation and all of its glories, where Jesus Christ will reign in glory, will be made ours in a coming day because we belong to Jesus Christ. And yet, just as that road to the inheritance was paved with suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ through his earthly life, so also for us, this side of the resurrection, we're not going to experience trouble-free lives. We are going to have to suffer with Christ. There's going to be things that we're going to endure in life which are painful. Not just spiritual sufferings, not just sufferings because because we are Christians, but suffering as Christians is our portion all the way through our earthly lives. And when we suffer with Christ, we've got the assurance that we will also reign with Christ and enter into the inheritance that he will enter into. And the key thing then that motivates us here to obey God, to serve God, is this wonderful new relationship that we have. When we know God as Father, it changes our obedience. We want to obey him. Because when we related to God under the system of the law and all of its demands and stipulations, it only exacerbated our problems. It only made us want to do the things that it said not to do. And it then led us into greater guilt and condemnation. But relating to God as Father changes that. Because we no longer serve God out of a sense of fear. But we serve God because we are his dearly loved children and because he is our father and that produces real obedience so as we've seen there is a struggle with sin Romans 7 makes that clear there's a struggle with sin and it's real we're never going to experience complete victory this side of the resurrection but as chapter 8 explains that's not the whole story there is real change available substantial victory is available to us through the work of the Spirit of God. There's going to be times when we struggle, when we fail, but the message of the Romans 8 is that God's decisive work in transforming us through the Spirit of God has begun and that progressive growth is possible. Why? Well, we've seen that in the first four verses, Paul explains that the sentence of condemnation is gone and we can serve God without any sense of fear or guilt. God has set us free from our condemnation. Then we saw in 5 to 11 that God has brought us into this new realm of the spirit where he's changed our whole mindset. 
No longer do we want to set our minds on the things of this, the flesh and all that we were interested in, but now we've got new ways of thinking and a desire to please God and serve him. And not only that, but we've got a new relationship with God. And that decisively changes things because no longer are we slaves, no longer do we serve God out of fear, but we are God's dearly loved children. And serving him with that knowledge enables us to obey him from changed hearts. So yes, real change is possible, but it's not a way through obedience to the law and putting ourselves under that authority of the law, but it's a way produced through the work of God's Holy Spirit, making us aware of what he has done in our lives. Let's give thanks to God. Gracious and Holy Father, we thank you for the love that has enabled us to approach you without any fear or guilt, to approach you with the knowledge that your Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, and to approach you with the knowledge